If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. You've been in Gateway for about six or seven days through one orbit. Now you're ready to go to the moon. You get your things together. You go into the landing vehicle. So the transfer element gets you close to lunar surface and the descent and landing element take you down to the surface. Artemis. That was the name of the ancient Greek moon goddess. And to NASA in the 21st century, it's also the name of an exciting multi-mission program currently being developed. The initial goal of the Artemis program is to return astronauts to the moon, and this time, they're going to get to stay and explore. But even lunar exploration isn't the final goal for NASA's Artemis program. Their future lunar outpost and expeditions are going to lay the foundation for missions to Mars. Systems engineer Matt Wittall works in mission design and planetary science at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. This podcast is not in any way, shape, or form affiliated with nor endorsed by NASA. Matt, you mentioned on LinkedIn that you've always been fascinated with space exploration and technology. How did that first capture your imagination as the work you really wanted to do? Oh, that's a long story. So <laughs> my parents took me to the Houston Space Center when I was a kid, and I picked up a couple books when I was there. One was the Space Shuttle Operator's Manual, and the other was the uh, Planet Quest by Brian, Brian Cromwell. I think it's Cromwell or Cros- Ken Croswell. That's what it was. And both those books sparked my interest both in space and in engineering, specifically engineering a spacecraft. And so it started from there, and it really became an addiction. I was always drawing spaceships all throughout high school and just kind of never stopped. Fast forward to now where you get to not only draw spaceships, you get to make some extraordinarily cool stuff on the Artemis program. How'd you first get involved in mission design? That's kind of where I aim my degree program. So all of my undergraduate projects and now my graduate project is now aimed towards mission design and focusing not only on the trajectory, but the whole systems engineering process and putting all the pieces together. And so when I came over here to KSC, I was kind of put into the propulsion division. And my mentor at the time was very very kind to notice that I didn't really know too much about propulsion itself. I was more of a systems and design person. So he he picked me up from there and put me in the gateway program. Uh, A couple months later, the vice president gave the speech about going to the moon in 2024 and Artemis, and here we are. Now, the Gateway program, what is Gateway specifically? So Gateway, it's uh, short for the Deep Space Gateway. This is a spacecraft that we're building and assembling around the moon, one module at a time. It's in a very elliptical orbit, and it allows easy access to the moon and beyond. Let's take a look together at the phases of Artemis. What's going to be happening? Where does Gateway fit? And what are we doing? Sure. So with the Moon 2024 initiative, the Gateway program got broken up into different phases. The first phase focuses on just getting to the Moon in 2024. And after that is accomplished, then we can add more to Gateway and start building it up into what we call Phase 2, which is the larger, more capable structure that enables long-term sustainable access to the Moon's surface. Tell me about what you're designing right now that fits those goals, please. Well, right now I'm working on the logistics module, which is kind of the cargo truck to the Deep Space Gateway. We're working on allowing commercial partners to deliver supplies to the Gateway so that we can keep a long-term mission going there at the moon. You're designing something that has no precedent. How do you do that? 
when you know that it has to work right the first time and it has to be sustainable and there's no blueprint, what are you doing that's going to make that work? That's a good question. There's been a lot of projects over the years that we can kind of draw lessons learned from, but you're right in saying that this is kind of, this is new. We don't really have, uh, like you said, a blueprint to draw from. So we're trying to reduce risk by identifying aspects of the project that need to be addressed by the contractors. So when we put out this contract, they need to pay attention to making sure that there are redundancies in place, that there's accessibility for crew members, for that we can get supplies in and out, how we're going to do that. So we're trying to buy down that risk so that when the commercial contractors and the partners that we select from industry provide us product, we know that we'll be compatible with the rest of Gateway and be something that's safe for astronauts and surface assets. What are some of the creative lessons that you're getting from previous moon missions that are going to help you do this? So a similar missions have been the commercial resupply to the space station. So we have multiple countries that have provided services and supplies to the gateway. Roscosmos has their resupply service. We have ones from the European Union. JAXA has their own. And of course, we have a couple from here in the United States, such as SpaceX's Dragon and CRS. So by looking at those missions and looking at the templates they have for low Earth orbit access, we can extend those capabilities based on lessons learned from Apollo so that we can have a reliable product to the gateway. When we design something that's not only going to the moon, but going to the moon to stay, and that's going to be, hopefully, this is going to sound like a bad pun, but a launch pad to go to Mars ultimately, what are some of the considerations? What do we have to think about besides redundancy that you mentioned before? Well, there's a lot of things about living and staying on the lunar surface that we don't really think about coming here on Earth. We know that people who spend a lot of time in low-gravity environments tend to have other physiological concerns. So there's the medical aspects. There's also lunar dust has become a huge issue, and that's something we're pretty good at researching here at KSC. The Swampworks Division has a large focus on lunar dust mitigation. And then there's also the matter of resupplying assets on the surface or building up local infrastructure so that they can resupply themselves, such as mining the ice on the lunar poles. And it's not so much a matter of just going there and just picking it up and putting it into some kind of processor machine. That needs to be powered. That needs to have replacement parts if it goes bad. There's a whole system that needs to be in place to make sure that we can have a sustainable presence on the moon. So unlike Apollo, where it was just one mission, drop something on the surface, do some exploring and go home, we have to build up an entire mini city there and a a lot of little components that need to plug into each other so that we can stay there as long as we need to. I'm back on finding that ice on the lunar pole. What a cool mission. Let's suppose that it is now 2024. You've got the astronauts up on the moon. How do we proceed? How do we go and get the ice from the south pole of the moon? Well, that's a, that's a good question. We know that there's ice there based on the LCROSS mission. The LCROSS mission had a spacecraft that impacted on the lunar pole, and we saw from the debris and the, the chemicals that it threw up that there is ice there. The quantity of dust, the quantity of ice that's on the surface and how it's mixed with the soil is another question entirely. So it'll take some missions to go there, that first 2024 mission where we take some samples and we find out, okay, what will it really take to get this out and how much is there? And so from there, then we know how much filtering we need to do of the dust, what kind of mining operation we need to do, and really what's required, how many missions, how much mass, and there's a lot of questions to that. When you say how many missions, I was looking, initially I was thinking Artemis was a mission and it's not. Do I have it right that this can be as many as six different missions or am I mistaken? Are there more? 
So, yes, there are many different missions, and I believe it is six. I think you're correct on that. But Artemis 1 is just the one that's going to launch later, and Artemis 1 is just a quick orbit around the moon, unmanned. Artemis 2 goes to the lunar orbit with people, and Artemis 3 is the big one. That's 2024 where we land. And then there's going to be subsequent missions after that that put people on the surface of the moon over and over again to build up this infrastructure. What is going to be some of the coolest technology that you have seen so far in your work designing for Artemis? So there's a lot of pioneering technologies that are going to be necessary to maintain this presence. I mean, International Space Station has the luxury of being resupplied easily and on a regular basis. But when you're all the way out at the moon, then these resupply missions have to last longer, go further. So the independence and automation required to have this gateway performed by itself without human interaction all the time is crucial. It's a crucial part of the mission. So things like automated docking and rendezvous are very important. And that's something we've seen happen in the International Space Station. But we had a human operator that had eyes on that spacecraft as it approached. It's going to have to do it all by itself over there in the gateway. And then there's the question of external and internal robotics. So basically, you're talking about a a robotic spacecraft that can control and maintain itself, all while making sure that the environment inside is safe for humans and stays that way. What do you have to make sure of to keep that robotic spacecraft safe when there's nobody up there watching it? Well, I guess it comes down to ensuring that it has communication with Earth at all times. And that's one of the benefits of this near-rectilinear halo orbit, or NRHO which is the orbit in which the gateway is placed. So it's always communicating with Earth. So we always have the chance to observe and send new signals and updates as required. But there's still some time lag with that, and you have to make sure that those time lags are taken into account when designing the spacecraft and how it behaves on itself. Of course, we have listeners to this podcast, which, by the way, I promised I would say that this podcast is not endorsed by NASA. I am not in any way, shape, or form affiliated by NASA. I just think that space flight is extraordinarily cool, as do my listeners. We have listeners that love robots. What are some of the resources for makers like my listeners who like the robotics and at the same time for educators that NASA is offering right now that they can follow along with the Artemis missions? I'm glad you mentioned that. I did go to the Makers Fest in San Francisco, so I know the kind of clever robotics that I'm sure your listeners can come up with. It's really some amazing stuff. Well, NASA has $7 billion in contracts out there available for educators for developing the technologies that we're going to use in the future at universities around the country. So NASA has a presence in all 50 states, including two districts, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, and 850 direct affiliates. That's just for space grant, not including some of our other programs. So there's plenty of ways that you can tie into NASA or or get NASA assistance. I mean, it's all about developing the industry, not just here at NASA, but across the country as well. What will be some of the effects eventually after we've gone to the moon, We've got a presence established there, and now we're looking at Mars. What will that mean to us here on Earth? Well, I mean, besides the commercial impact, you know, as soon as you have a new place to to go and industrialize, you know, you have the lunar environment, which has a lot of resources that are exposed and accessible once we get the infrastructure in place. That being said, once we go to the moon and we test out a lot of the technologies that we've been working on over the past 50 years since Apollo, then we can take those and apply them to Mars and make sure that getting to Mars is can be done safely for humans and reliably. And then you have, you know, an interplanetary kind of supply chain that's there. And that's huge potential for the commercial industry. And regarding the technology as well, all the technology that we develop here at NASA, it's, it works its way back into the community as well. Everything that 
the tax dollars goes into. I mean, in my opinion, the NASA is one of the best bang for your buck you get when it comes to government programs and government initiatives. It's some extraordinarily cool stuff. What's been one of the most fun experiences you've had so far working on the Artemis project? You know, honestly, since I got here, everything's been a, been a blast. I've had a really good time. Gateway is definitely the most exciting program that I think is going on here at KIC, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be a part of it. I'm happy to come to work every day. That being said, probably, I mean, the, the most fun thing is just seeing how everything develops. You know, you have this concept going into, when someone tells you what you're going to be doing, you have a concept in your head, you have an expectation. But as soon as you start connecting with others and discussing this and working things out, you know, people say things and have different backgrounds, so they contribute and make you think about things you haven't thought of before. And so it's not only the process of seeing your expectations change and develop into a real product, but to have that dialogue go back and forth and see how everyone contributes and make something that's brand new. And to know you're a part of that is really extraordinary. If you can tell me this, what would have been something, one of the design process things that brought up a consideration you hadn't thought of before and turned out better than you expected? So going into this, I really had only the vaguest idea of how supplies got to the International Space Station. You know, I, I knew they put them in some kind of can, put it on a rocket and got it up there. But the entire process of what we call RPOD, Rendezvous Proximity Operations and Docking, was something I had no idea before. You know, it was all about the trajectories before I got here. So seeing all of the little pieces that go into just docking in space, when you see sci-fi movies, it's always this tube that shoots out from one spaceship to another, click, done. But there's a lot of safeguards that go into that. I mean, you're transferring... You have a data connection, you have a power connection, sometimes you can transfer fluids. There's ventilation between modules, there's the securing of the latch itself. How do you make sure that's airtight? And if you miss, what happens? You have to design build-in protocols and contingencies for if that docking doesn't work, you have to know what do you do? Are you capable of docking again? What if this connection doesn't work? Do you have a, a, a contingency for that? And on top of that, you know, I know your listeners love robotics. You have to have robotic access to and from. Do you have a robot open the hatch? If the hatch is open, how does the robot go through it? How does it get power on the other side? That connection between two modules or two spacecraft is so much more complex than I considered in the past. And so getting input from other people who have worked on this before, other engineers and people who have been here for 10, 20 years, it's astonishing, all the thought that goes into that. And of course, the things we envision here, if you see a movie or something, just like you've said, is not what the reality is like. Exactly. I'm envisioning being on board Gateway. Let's say that everything's gone great. We're on Gateway. We are going to go from Gateway. Now we're going to explore the moon. You've got a mini city on the moon that we can now explore. How do we do this? How long does it take to get to the moon? And what kinds of technologies are enabling us to be there? Well, Gateway's orbit itself takes about six days, six to seven days to complete one revolution around the moon. It's very elliptical, so it passes within 7,000 kilometers of the moon and then out to some 40,000 kilometers. So it's very elliptical. So when you say how long does it take to get to the moon, it's, uh, it depends on when you leave from. Nominally, when you leave, you, it's only takes, it only takes less than a day to get down to the surface, you know, a few hours. And to do that, you have docked a gateway, you've been in gateway for about six or seven days through one orbit, now you're ready to go to the moon. So you, you get your things together, you go into the, the landing vehicle, which is composed of three elements, the transfer element, the descent element, and the ascent element. So the transfer element gets you close to lunar surface, and it shoots off and goes away. So that's, all, that's some of your fuel, and the descent and landing element take you down to the surface. And once you're there, you, you do what you need to do on the moon, you hop back into your spacecraft, now the Ascent element takes off from there, leaving the descent element behind and redocking with Gateway. Nominally, in 
less than a day. But one of the benefits of the Gateway Orbit is that you can do that at any time. It's just how much fuel do you want to use? And fuel equals mass equals cost. And you've mentioned, of course, gathering the polar ice. What would be some of the other things that as an astronaut we might need to do on the moon? Well, there's a lot of industrialization that can go into the moon. I mean, there's helium-3 up there that we know to be on the surface, which is something that's really hard to get here on Earth. There's also just raw materials for building that are built in the lunar surface. But like I mentioned earlier, it requires a lot of industrialization, a lot of infrastructure to build that up and make that happen. The lunar ice is one huge concern because not only is that the oxygen and water for our astronauts, but it's also rocket fuel. You break that into oxygen and hydrogen and you have what you need to get to Mars. So this lunar gateway and the industrialization that we're building on the lunar surface can act as a refueling point. It's a lot cheaper to go from the moon to Mars than it is to go to Earth to Mars. So we can send something over to the moon, to the gateway, get refueled and go on. And of course, what's wowing me is that when I was a kid, they said there's no water on the moon, there's no water on the moon. We just discovered this, what, in 2009? Do I have that right? Right, 2009. And, you know, there's even water and organics on Mercury. We discovered that a few years ago as well. So there's a lot of surprises out there. We might be able to be a bit more creative than we first thought. There's a lot more, I don't want to say, you know, life, that's a, that's a dangerous word, but there's a lot more out there than we first thought. When you look at what looks to be a dead body with just a bunch of craters on it, and there's a lot more to that. And the more we explore, the more we get people out there to poke around and look, the more we find. And trust me, there's a lot more surprises that even our own solar system has for us. Are we alone, do you think? Hmm. Alone as in the only life or the only intelligent life? Let's say only intelligent life. Hmm. Well, now you're talking about the Drake equation and the Fermi paradox. <laughs> so, I didn't know I was that intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> so these are two questions. You know, Drake equation means that something that was created by estimating how many civilizations should be out there. And so you have a whole bunch of coefficients that show, okay, how many planets are in the solar system, how many solar systems are in the universe, how many of those planets might harbor life, how many of the planets might harbor life for a long enough period of time. So you put all these coefficients together and multiply it. And then even with the most conservative estimates, you're talking about thousands, tens of thousands of civilizations that should be out there. And so then you lead in the Fermi paradox, which says, if all of these civilizations are out there, why haven't we heard from them yet? And there's tons of theories about that and why we haven't. My personal thoughts on this, and this does not reflect NASA's sentiments, but my personal thoughts is that there's probably, they're probably out there, but they're too far away. Wow, that's amazing to think about. We've talked a lot about the science, but when you're sending human beings to the moon, there's an art in science and there are aesthetics. What is the art of designing a mission that's going to not only be going to the moon and staying, but ultimately looking at Mars? <laughs> this reminds me of one of the classes I took for my master's program, and it was called Systems Architecting. And the professor argued during the entire course that there's as much art as there is science. And I really had a tough time swallowing that. By the end of the course, I'm not sure if I was completely convinced, but I did have an appreciation of the art in designing something new, and especially when it comes to spacecraft, because you know, there's a lot of numbers that go into designing a spacecraft and creating a new system, because that's what it is. It's not just, you know, you're not developing a tin can. There's a lot of little pieces that work together. And when you get to thinking about that, the way that you describe that, the way that you illustrate your concept is as it, there's a lot of art to that and it's there's a lot of science in the art itself because you're trying to make your ideas convey your ideas to your fellow engineers and to other people but it is an art you know it's there's a lot of subjectivity there and i guess that's really what it's about right art is the the process of eliciting an emotional response 
through whatever you create. And yeah, I mean, I guess addressing art, art and engineering, that's what it's about. Which for years, I did not believe that myself, that art was science nor science art, but it's been a real revelation. What is one story you're probably going to tell your great grandkids decades from now about working on Artemis mission? What's been one of your favorites? You know, I, I think that the real moment that that'll really sink in is when it launches, when I see a logistics module go up on a rocket and, and know that that was the product of something that I started working on in the very early phases. That'll be the talking point. That's, that'll be something, really something to see. Let's give some dates as we know them now. Do I understand the first mission is going to launch 20, I, I have 2022, but I think I'm wrong about that. What are the dates? So Artemis 1, which is the unmanned mission around the moon, will launch planning late 2020, looking like really early 2021. And that's the first SLS launch, Space Launch System. That's the really big rocket NASA's been building. Artemis 2, I believe, is the manned flight around the moon, and that's aimed for 2022. And 2024, that's the big date. Of course, that's a landing on the moon, late 2024. Wow, this is going to be so amazing. What happens next? Let's say everything goes beautifully. We're looking at Mars. When might we be looking at going to Mars, and what are we doing? So the... The estimated date for Mars is now 2030X, so probably somewhere in the late 2030s. And when we're looking at that, I mean, the Gateway is intended to be a prototype system for a Mars lander. So ideally, we can reuse all the components that we're using for Gateway to build a Mars ship and just put them out, put them up in orbit, assemble them just like we did Gateway and send them over there, maybe in a little bit different configuration. I'm sure there will be a lot of lessons learned with Gateway, and we're going to change that some of the details to those components as they become necessary. But overall, the, the architecture is there, and, and there's a lot of capabilities for extending these components all the way to Mars and beyond. And final question that I usually ask on my podcast, Matt, and I'd love to ask you this one. If people could only get one thing from you and your work on Artemis about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you like them to take away from you? Uh, so this is easy, and, it, and it's something that's that everyone is guilty of, and that's not considering the full system. And that's something I'd really like to drive home. It's, it's systems thinking. There's a lot of great, great books out there on systems thinking. But basically, it means, you know, you, when you flip a switch and you change something, you're not just, you know, changing one factor. It's an entire equation. And there's a lot of variables that you need to consider. So whenever building a project, consider all the parts. If you send a mission to, and I'm using spacecraft because that's what I'm familiar with, but it, it applies to everything in your life. So if you're sending a, a spacecraft to the moon, then it has to be designed a certain way. But if you want to send that to Mars, you got to change more than just one thing. You know, you're further away from the sun, you have bigger solar panels, then you have the amount of light that's reflected off your spacecraft is different. The amount of time that it takes to get there is different. So the key takeaway is, is consider the system whenever you're making big decisions or on big projects, or even at home designing robotics, you know, little Arduino boards or something like that. It's a system. You got to consider all the aspects and that's a little bit difficult, but don't be afraid to draw it out. Matt, thank you for your time today. No problem. Thanks for having me. It's been great. You and I have been listening to Matt Wittall, Mission Design and Planetary Science Systems Engineer at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. For more information on the Artemis program, check out nasa.gov, where you'll find their pages on both the Artemis missions and the Lunar Gateway, which, as Matt explained, is the small spaceship that's going to be orbiting the moon and making lunar exploration possible. Once again, that's nasa.gov. You'll find NASA's latest news stories on the Artemis program, along with their photographs, educational resources, and much more information on the Lunar Gateway and upcoming Artemis missions. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. 
Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X, twomavericks.com. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.